0: Charla and Regina are roommates at an Ivy League college. They met each other on freshman move-in day, that day when the new students arrive at campus and unpack their cars and move their belongings into the dorm. And they each are bright, accomplished students who graduated at the top of the class in their respective high schools. But as they began to converse, they realized that they actually had very little in common. And in many ways, these two women represent the kind of differences that currently keep our society anxious and on edge. Sharla grew up in the city. Regina grew up in the country. Sharla is politically liberal, while Regina is politically conservative. Sharla comes from wealth. Regina comes from a middle-class family. Sharla is white. Regina is black. Needless to say, these two women view life from very different perspectives. Now they happen to both be very articulate, they're very outspoken, and they love to passionately defend their viewpoints. So in the first few days of school, they often found themselves in discussions, and sometimes those discussions got very intense, and sometimes they turned into debates, and once in a while they turned into angry arguments. And it quickly, it quickly became the situation that their room was not a place of peace because their relationship wasn't peaceful. Well, imagine their surprise then when they bump into each other at a meeting of the Campus Christian Fellowship. Turns out that both of these women are followers of Jesus, but they didn't know it. They had talked about economics, they had talked about politics, they had talked about social issues, but they never had talked about faith. And now they are shocked to learn that despite all of their differences, they have Jesus in common. Now, here's something interesting. At first, the recognition of their common faith doesn't actually help because they've already decided they don't want to like each other. They are so different that they don't really want to get along. Plus, they both feel a bit wounded from from some of the things that have been said during their arguments. And they're not sure what to do. They're not sure about how to find a way forward. So they go and they speak to the leader of the campus Christian fellowship. And that very wise woman encourages them to do three things. She says, I want the two of you to sit down and read from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. I want you to talk about what you read. I want you to pray together then and see how the spirit of God might lead you. Charlotte and Regina followed that advice. And later on, I'm gonna tell you what happened in their relationship. First though, I want us to explore the same passage they did because I believe that we need the same godly advice. The fact is we live in a culture that is full of conflict. Conflict over religion and politics and social issues. Conflict that breeds worry and anxiety and even fear. And it is so easy for you and I to become infected by this. And it's easy for us to bring it with us into the relationships that we have within the community of faith. And if we're not careful, then our life together can be characterized by tension and by disagreement and a lack of unity. If we're not careful, we'll wind up facing the same kinds of problems that Charlotte and Regina did. And God, in his infinite wisdom, spoke through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul and gave us some great advice in Colossians chapter 3. And it's here that the Apostle Paul shows us a better way. He shows us how to live in peace together as members of God's family. And what Paul lays out is an ideal, but it's an achievable ideal. It's achievable when we make the choice to lay aside our pride and humbly live as followers of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, and see how God might speak to us in our community of faith today. The apostle writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now, obviously, this passage occurs in the middle of Paul's letter. He's writing to Christians living in the ancient city of Colossae, and this word at the start of our passage, that word, therefore, lets us know that Paul's writing some summary comments. He's about about to bring some focus based on things that he's previously written. And if we look back earlier in chapter 3, back in verses 1 and 2, he urged believers to shift their focus to take their focus off themselves and to put their focus on Jesus. And he said it this way, set your minds and your hearts on things above where Jesus is. He's urging them to put Jesus at the center of their lives. And here's why when Jesus occupies first place in the life of a believer, then our agenda becomes secondary. His agenda becomes primary. Now that's a fundamental shift in our priorities. And when we make it, here's what we find. That's when our fears and our worries and our anxieties begin to dissipate. That's when our pettiness begins to dissipate. Our pride begins to dissipate. All of the stuff that fuels conflict in our lives begins to dissipate. And when that happens, that's when it becomes possible to pursue peace in our relationships. To pursue peace within the family of God. And yet, in our broken human nature, we don't instinctively live in peace. Particularly at times when we're hanging out with people who are very different from us. And that's why God prompts Paul to write these words to these people at this time. You see, the church in Colossae is very diverse, which means that the potential for conflict is great. In this particular faith community, there are people who are wealthy and people who are poor. There are people who are educated and people who are uneducated. There are Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slaves and former slaves, native-born people and immigrants. The people in this church most likely communicate by speaking Greek to each other because it's the common language of commerce, but it's not the native language for everyone in that church. You see, the differences among these people are both wide and deep. And what does Paul do? He urges them to focus not on their differences, but on what they have in common. And so he writes and he says, you, all of you widely different people are God's chosen people. You, this community of faith, you are holy and loved. And they're a holy community not because they're perfect their holy community, because they've acknowledged their imperfections and they've received the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. That's their common identity. That's where they should focus. And when a group of people, a diverse group of people, have experienced mercy through a gracious and forgiving God, It doesn't matter whether they live in ancient Colossae or in modern-day Eugene. Those people then are equipped to interact with each other in a new and different way. Instead of pursuing power or position or prestige, instead of trying to impose our preferences and our agendas on others, instead of engaging in manipulation and gossip, we can choose to pursue peace. And Paul offers a roadmap for doing just that. We pursue peace by embracing the kinds of qualities described in verses 12 and 13. Qualities like compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, humility. Paul says we can become the kind of people who instead of quickly taking offense, we choose to put up, with each other. And when these kinds of characteristics permeate our community, they result in a different kind of community, a community that is not defined by conflict but by forgiveness and love and peace. We become a community where our default is not to complain about each other or to hold grudges against each other or to plot revenge against each other. Instead, we become a community where our instinctive reaction, our default, is to ask the Spirit of God to help us heal any broken relationships that we have. That's what these characteristics do. And here's something that's even better. The qualities listed here actually protect us against the kind of conflicts that require forgiveness in the first place. For example, pride tends to stir up conflict. Humility tends to defuse conflict. So Paul gives us this list of qualities as both a prevention and a cure because these Christ-like qualities promote peace within the community of faith. And that's why Paul urges us to clothe ourselves with these attributes. So we don't wear them like jewelry. We don't put them on like a hat because they're not accessories to life. They are essential. They're essential just like clothes because they cover our nakedness. You see, if you and I are not wearing godly qualities like these, then we're spiritually naked. Our ungodly nature is exposed for all to see. So God wants these qualities to be part of your daily apparel and mine. He wants us to wear them constantly and bring them into our relationships with each other so that we can forgive like Jesus forgives. So we can love like Jesus loves. So we can live in peace as members of God's family. And this only happens and we let Jesus change us from the inside out. It's a matter of the heart, as Paul says here in verse 15. And this is so critical to understand because forgiveness that is not from the heart is not really forgiveness at all. Think about what it was like when you were a kid. I remember from my childhood, I was regularly getting into arguments with my older sister. And whenever we would have a conflict, my mother always seemed to assume that it was my fault. Usually she was right. (laughs) But we'd be fighting and she'd step in and intervene to calm things down. And then at some point she would look at me and say, now you apologize to your sister. And what would I do? I would say very grudgingly, okay, I'm sorry. You see, that wasn't heartfelt forgiveness. It was forgiveness out of duty. It was forgiveness that was demanded and commanded, and that kind of forgiveness does not truly result in peace. And I find that when we become adults, sometimes we actually don't do much better at this than we did when we were kids. When I have a conflict with my wife, oh, it is so tempting to give a token apology. And I may say, I forgive you, honey, but I can say that and what I might really be thinking could be I'm apologizing right now because I'm tired of fighting. But what I'm really gonna do is hold on to this hurt. I'm gonna keep score and I'm gonna store this away so that later on I can pull it out and play that card against you again. Does any of that sound familiar? That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not heartfelt forgiveness. We can't get there on our own. And that's why God's love has to surround all of the qualities that Paul talks about here. You know, he says we have to to clothe ourselves with godly behavior. I view love as the top coat the top coat we put on that surrounds all of these other qualities. Because only love given by God is going to enable you and me to completely forgive from the heart. That's the kind of forgiveness that we've experienced from Jesus, and it's what he asks us to pass on to others. He wants us to practice forgiveness based in love, from the heart, with every member of God's family. Because forgiveness wrapped in love leads to peace. Peace between members of God's family. Peace between husbands and wives. Peace between parents and children. If you're a mom or dad, I've got a question for you. Do you ever apologize to your children? That takes some real humility. It's not easy to do, but it can be so very healing. You see, we promote peace and we pursue peace and we teach our children how to be godly when what we model for them is loving, humble forgiveness by apologizing when we are at fault. It is not easy to apologize to an eight year old but I've done it, and it has been fruitful. It's healing. It promotes peace. How about those times when you and I find ourselves in conflict with another member of the church? In that moment, can we respond with some gentleness and kindness, forgiveness? Can we choose to humbly pursue peace in that relationship? How about if the leaders of our church make a decision and for some reason that decision offends you? Can you respond with some kindness and gentleness and love? Can you choose to humbly pursue peace in those relationships? I I don't think any of this is optional. I think it is vital for us to learn how to do this, particularly when we recognize that the entire reason for our community is love and forgiveness. Without the love we've experienced from God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we would have no business being here. And if we can't learn then to take what we have been given and to share it among ourselves, Then we're never going to do it well outside the church as we interact with people who are far from God. This is where God gives us the opportunity to put our faith into practice through forgiveness and love that leads to peace. And ultimately, it's a matter of the heart. What's in your heart? What's in my heart? Is it the humble pursuit of peace that reflects the love of Jesus or is it the prideful pursuit of our own selfish priorities? We pursue peace by letting the peace of Jesus rule in our hearts. And that's why verse 15 is the core of this passage. It ties together what Paul just wrote and it ties together what he writes next. And so we're going to read verse 15 again as we move forward in this passage. Let's take a look. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, think about that, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all, not some but all, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the things I love about verse 15 is that Paul borrows an athletic term to make his point. And we could paraphrase verse 15 this way. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts so you can live in peace with other followers of Jesus. So what's the role of an umpire? An umpire is the one who makes the judgment calls about balls and strikes. The umpire decides if you're safe or out. It's the umpire's standards who prevail, not ours. And in the same way, we let the peace of Jesus, his standards, set the boundaries for our behavior. And as Paul says here, as Jesus' peace rules It begins in our hearts. We let him change us inwardly so we then can live in peace outwardly in our relationships with one another. And here is the painful reality. We need to let Jesus be our umpire because we don't do it very well. If we rely on our own wisdom and our own priorities and our own values and our own instincts, then far too often we're going to wind up in conflict. And oh, how I wish it wasn't so. But it is. And I hate to admit it, but I am not godly enough to be able to live in peace with every other follower of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. I'm just not. And neither are you. And so we need to let Jesus be our umpire and lead us toward peace, the peace of Christ. And there's no mystery about how to get there because Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew chapter five, verse nine, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, the peacemakers, or they will be called the children of God. So the peace of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to be a peacemaker, and making peace is active, not passive. So we don't sit around waiting for peace to happen. We pursue it, and we initiate it, and peacemakers promote healing and reconciliation so that our community of faith will be a community full of God's peace. And based on what Paul writes here, we can conclude that when the community of faith is at peace, then we're set free from our petty sideline issues to focus on the message of Jesus, which is where our attention ought to be anyway. And so when we come together, we're not focused on other stuff. We're worshiping Jesus and honoring Jesus and encouraging each other in the life of faith. That becomes our priority. As Paul says here, there's times when we need to admonish one another. But we do that based on the character qualities that we've clothed ourselves with. We admonish one another based on gentleness, and patience, and humility, and love. We lovingly correct each other based not on our own wisdom, but on the wisdom of God. And Because we become this Christ-focused worshiping community, then there are so many reasons to be thankful We become a community that's permeated by this attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness. We become a place where we regularly express thankfulness to God for his love and forgiveness. We express our thanks to God for each other, even with our differences. In fact, thanking God for our differences. We thank God for giving us the ability to live in peace with one another as we surrender our prideful hearts to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, it all sounds so lofty and noble. It may even sound idealistic. Is it really doable? Yep, it is doable. The reason it's hard is because our pride so often gets in the way. And our stubbornness. Because the reality is we all have views that we hold deeply. And it's hard to want to pursue peace when I know I'm right. And I know you're wrong. But again, let's think about who Paul's writing to here. From what we know about the first century church, it's highly likely that some people in the Colossian Fellowship are Roman citizens who absolutely are enamored and proud of their government. It's also highly likely there are people in this church who are not Roman citizens and who hate the Roman government. It's highly likely that in this church fellowship there are both soldiers and pacifists. Now those are deeply held, profound differences. Yet Paul is convinced that people like that can get along. They can live together in peace by making peace with each other. And so can we, if we take this godly advice seriously. Paul's word to us as it was to the Colossian Christians, is this. Let your faith in Jesus come first. Because when his agenda is primary, then you can live in peace with one another. And whenever that happens, oh, what great reason the people of God will have to give thanks to God the Father through Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who makes that kind of lasting peace possible between people who may have nothing else in common. I'd like us to go back now and visit once again Sharla and Regina, the two college roommates I introduced you to at the beginning of the message who have very little in common except their faith in Jesus. And at the urging of the leader of their campus Christian fellowship, they read this passage together. They talked about it. They prayed about it. And as they prayed, the Holy Spirit prompted each of them to apologize for some of the hurtful things that they'd said to each other, or some of the bitter words they'd spoken in anger. And they each confessed to being full of pride because whenever they got in a disagreement, their goal was to win, not to figure out how to live in peace. So as they talk, they realize that they need to let their mutual love for Jesus keep them in a healthy relationship. They resolve to bear with each other, using Paul's words from verse 13. In other words, they are going to ask the Holy Spirit to help them become more tolerant of their differences so they can learn to put up with each other. And they admit that neither one of them has all the answers. So they realize they need to practice some humility. And as they do, they might learn some things from each other. And as a result of this discussion, they camp on verse 15, and they make it their mutual goal, to let the peace of Jesus rule in their hearts so they can live in peace. Now they know they're going to continue to disagree about many things. So they acknowledge that there probably are some areas where they will need to agree to disagree in order to live in peace. So they talk about all this, they pray about this, and and then they do something that in my view is the icing on the cake. They decide they're going to start every day by praying together. And each morning they're going to ask God to help them do everything, every word, every deed, to do it all in the name of Jesus. And as they pray, they will ask God to help them cultivate an attitude of thankfulness, to go through each day being thankful to God for what He's done through Jesus, and to find ways to thank God for each other, in both the ways in which they're alike and the many ways in which they are different. Well, the next few months are a bit rocky, but as Charlotte and Regina focus on Jesus as they let His peace increasingly rule their hearts. They find that their hostility over politics and social issues begins to dissipate. They slowly begin to build a trusting, meaningful relationship. They bring peace to their life together. And that frees them to focus on their faith, to focus on encouraging one another and supporting one another, and to help each other find how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in in the daily challenges of campus life by working through their difficulties together, by striving to be peacemakers, they actually become friends. And they're now able to do all sorts of things together without friction or conflict. And during their sophomore year, they wind up as co-leaders of the campus-wide discipleship ministry. They reach a point where they're able to work side-by-side, serving Jesus together. Because each day they make a choice. I will let Jesus and his peace rule my heart today. Charlotte and Regina embraced the wisdom of God that's revealed here in this Bible passage, and they allowed the Holy Spirit to show them how to make it real in their lives and in their relationship. How about us? Is the peace of Jesus ruling in your heart and mine? Or are we pursuing some other agenda? Are we at peace with other members of God's family? I find myself wondering what might God's Spirit prompt us to do so we can experience peace in all of the relationships that we have within the family of God. This area of life is so important, and it's not easy and it's challenging. And so I believe it's an area where where we can be, where we can get tremendous benefit by asking leaders of the church to come alongside us and help us. The elders are the overseers of our community and, and one of their primary ministries is to pray with us and encourage us when we struggle. And so if you're struggling to be a peacemaker, If you have a broken relationship and you don't know how to move it forward, I want to invite you at the end of the service to head over to the prayer corner. And we will have an elder or two there. And they would love to talk with you and pray with you and encourage you. Because they would love to help you discern how you can bring peace to any broken relationship. As a way to express the forgiveness and love that you've received from Jesus who saves us. Because Jesus calls us, all of us, to peace.